I don't care what my house looks like when I buy it. I, I actually, that's not true. I care very much what it looks like. I hope it's ugly as sin because I want to make it look beautiful. There are people who have no vision. There are people who have no time to work on it. There are people who just don't want to. They want to buy a nice house. And all of those ideas are valid. I want to force the appreciation and make the money on the house. And I have to live someplace anyway. My house is an investment because I'm making it nicer so I can push the value up. That was Mindy Jensen of the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. She's also the community manager of Bigger Pockets. For folks that don't know, Bigger Pockets is a real estate investment community and publishing company, media company. They do a lot of stuff. They have several podcasts and Mindy is the host of one of them. I highly recommend you check it out. I've been listening to her podcast and I subscribed to it in the last couple months once I'm, I met her and her husband, Carl. And you may remember I interviewed Carl a few weeks back and we actually talk about Carl a little bit. I guess it's not technically behind his back, but he didn't know what we were saying. So he'll listen to it because he actually fed me a couple jokes. There's some bloopers. I will play those at the end. So if you are brand new to this podcast, thanks for checking it out. My name is Doug Cunnington. This is The Doug Show. Mindy and I talk about a lot of different topics. She is an expert and is very well known in the real estate and investment community, especially around live-in flips and that sort of thing. I wasn't really familiar with the, the whole concept, so I was able to come in with some fairly ignorant questions. I, I tried to do some research ahead of time, so hopefully they're not totally out of left field or anything like that. But we talk about real estate investing. We talk about financial independence. Her husband, Carl, blogs over at 1500 Days, and he's pretty well known in the financial independence, uh, I guess, industry or community in general. We talk about books. Mindy, she actually wrote a book. She has another one coming out uh, later on in 2020. And we talk about podcasting too. So she has uh, over 100 episodes under her belt. It was very interesting to just hear about what it's like podcasting, especially she has a, a much bigger show. She has a co-host named Scott Trench, who is the CEO of the Bigger Pockets Company. So pretty cool uh, group of folks that she runs with. We talk about all sorts of stuff because when we were when we were recording, it was going on for like an hour and a half or so. And then we chatted for a while after that. So I have to thank Mindy a ton for taking time out of her busy schedule. And she's also my my real estate agent. So we got to hang out doing business in the last couple months as well. And she is uh, tremendous in that area too. I'm a little bit, um, I just kind of feel funny working with a real estate agent because I don't know if they have the same motives as me or incentives. But I felt extremely comfortable working with Mindy and it was a, you know, it's been a great experience so far. Do check out Bigger Pockets if you're interested in real estate investing. We'll link up to all of Mindy's social and how you can get in touch with her and, and that sort of thing. And please definitely check out the Bigger Pockets Money podcast. There's a few other podcasts as well under the Bigger Pockets brand, but Mindy is on the Bigger Pockets Money podcast and 
It's a very cool one. Lots of cool people on there. A lot of the same ideas um, as we talk about here on The Doug Show. And one of the common threads that I'm finding in personal finance and real estate investing and affiliate marketing and making money online, we all just want freedom with our time. People are attracted to different areas, whether it's real estate and owning rental properties or an apartment building or websites or running a service-based business or anything like that. We just want freedom with our time rather than working for a corporation, unless it's a cool corporation, which, you know, there are some better ones than others, but I know I found myself in sort of a, a job that I really didn't love, a big consulting company, and I was you know, disappointed when I got laid off. But in hindsight, it was a great um, experience to be laid off, which sounds weird. That's a strange sentence to say out loud. Okay. Without further ado, I'm going to send it over to the interview with Mindy Jensen. And don't forget there's bloopers at the end. So hang on after the credits and all that stuff. So let's get into the meat of what what we're doing here today. So technically, you're financially independent, right? Like you and Carl. Yes. I wouldn't say technically. I would say we are financially independent. Uh, Well, you know what? Technically is a good way to say that. I will take that back and and agree with you because I do have a job, which is um, not allowed according to the internet retirement police, but I don't care what they say. I'm going to have my job because I really like my job. And we have enough money based on the 4% rule. We have enough money to never have to work again. And then Carl was uh, kind of leery about quitting his job. So he stayed on until we doubled it. And then he's like, okay, I'm going to leave. Or maybe, maybe it was before then, but yeah, he, we definitely have two X what we think we need for the 4% rule. And I have a job and my job provides health insurance and a salary that we can live off of and continue to save. I max out my 401k every year. I max out my HSA every year. So I don't need to touch that right now. But if I quit tomorrow, we have enough that neither one of us has to work again. Perfect. And you, it was so... Um, <laughs> your answer was so like rich with... Uh, <laughs> Um, like jargon and stuff that I know maybe a year ago, I wouldn't have followed like much of what you said, but it's interesting that this whole like subculture of Phi and it's pretty cool. Cause there's like, again, just vocabulary and definitions that other people don't know about. So for the people that don't know, like what's the quick definition of the 4% rule. So the 4% rule is based on a study done by William Bangan, I don't know, in the 80s, I think. He looked at all of the past uh, stock market data, and he said, based on past performance, and past performance is not indicative of future gains, based on past stock market performance, if you save X amount of money and withdraw 4% in the first year and then readjust for inflation every year, you should be able to retire for or live off your, your savings, your investments for 30 years and have at least not run out of money for 30 years with, I think, a 96% chance of success. So basically, if you take the inverse of that, 25 times your annual spending is what you need to have in investments in order to be financially free. 
Um, so our number, just like most people, we spend about $40,000 a year. So 40 times 25 is a million dollars. We had a million dollars. We got to our, Carl calls it the double comma club. We got mm-hmm. to the double comma club. And then we essentially doubled that um, with, you know, the crazy stock market that we've had right now. So um, that is what the 4% rule is. If you can live off of 4% of your investments as an annual spending, mm-hmm. you should be good to go. Perfect. Very concise definition. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Way to describe my conversations. <laughs> and when you guys were first like thinking about retiring and you were running the math, because I know a lot of people, like I've mentioned exactly what you said, and they're like a million dollars. Holy crap. That's a lot of money. Um, how, how could we possibly do that? So when you were first looking at the numbers, did you think it was close? Like, how did you feel personally? So Carl and I are both super frugal. Some people pronounce that cheap and we just always saved. We didn't really know what we were saving for, but saving is just something that you do. You don't spend every dime that comes in. You invest it in the stock market and, um, and in real estate, real estate is my love and the stock market is his true love. Uh, so he's, that's all right. That's all right. Oh, sorry. I meant to turn this off. I was going to say, I probably have mine going too. This is just real life here. So yeah, <laughs> yeah we forget stuff and, uh, yeah. Well, I don't know about you. Out. I'm perfect. That was my one mistake. <laughs> um, so the, he invested in the stock market. He was a tech guy. And he was fascinated in the, you know, the early 2000s. He was fascinated by all of these internet companies that are coming out. Facebook was this thing and Google, he was working on a project. He's a computer programmer and he was having a problem. And he was like, Oh man, does anybody know how to fix this? And one of his friends said, Oh, Google it. He's like, what is that? And it's kind of hard to, to imagine now there was a time where people didn't know what Google meant. Um, so he looked it up. And there was the exact thing he had to do. He said, Oh my God, this thing, this, this Google is unbelievable. And they announced that they were going public. So they were doing this Dutch auction. You can look it up. I don't know all the ins and outs of that, but basically everybody says, Oh, I'll pay this much for it. I'll pay that much for it. And the highest price that the most amount of people were willing to pay is what they went with, I think it was like $85 a share or something. And my thought was, wow, $85 a share, that's a lot of money for a stock. But now it's worth, what, $1,000 a share or something? I don't know. And how many times did it split? It could grieve. I'm not sure because that's his wheelhouse. He does all the stock stuff. Um, But it has, he's called it a 20 bagger, which means that it is 20 times more valuable than when we bought it. And we bought Facebook at the IPO. We bought, you know, all these things, the Apple at mm-hmm. like $20 or something, Tesla at $20. And I don't know if you've been watching Tesla just go crazy Bananas. lately. So he bought all these stocks and just kind of set them, set it and forget it, buy it, and then just don't look at them anymore. And of course, now we recommend that you invest in index funds, but that really wasn't like a big thing then. So we were just investing in things that he felt comfortable investing in. This Google is amazing. This Facebook, who do you know that isn't on Facebook? I met one lady last night at a meetup who isn't on Facebook. Literally everybody else I know at least has an account if they're not on it every single day. Um, so he would invest in that. And we had approximately 500 in 
$80,000 just in various investments when he discovered financial independence. So that was the end of 2012, beginning of 2013. And at that point, the market started going crazy. And so we had a really good leg up, but it was I don't want to say it was all this money that we weren't using because you're never not using money. You're doing something with it. Um, but it was this money that we had just, we didn't need to live. So we had invested it and then it just went crazy. And when we hit the the double comma club, it was like the week before his 40th birthday. Oh, and he was nice. so excited about that. Um, and now I can't remember what the question was that you asked me. <laughs> It was what what did you have for breakfast? And we ended up here. A pot of coffee. <laughs> so okay, so basically a, a million sounds like a lot, but because you guys were in your basically like mid to late thirties, you guys saved pretty well. You weren't going crazy uh, as far as spending and you were generally living within your means for twenty plus years. Yes. Well, I would say we were living well below our means. Carl had a really well-paying job. Um, I quit work to raise our two kids. Um, and that was always the plan. I didn't leave some massive career. I left a job that was interesting, but not amazing. Um, I stayed home with the girls. And then he continued to make really good money as a software programmer. And we just... I don't know that we could spend what he was making... Like, that's just not our makeup. We don't, we don't have brand new clothes. We don't have the latest phones or, you know, get computers every time they upgrade or anything like that. Um, and the whole kids are really expensive. They're as expensive as you want them to be. You know, I, I'm very, very blessed that I have healthy kids. We go to the doctor for their one year checkups, like, or their annual checkups. And that's kind of the only time we go to the doctor. So I do realize that, that I'm very lucky in that way, but, we just don't spend a lot of money. I don't care about cars and clothes. And, you know, if you look at me and think, wow, that's not a very cool outfit. I don't care. It covers the bits that it needs to cover. And that's really all I need. <laughs> so we were probably living on, I mean, we never really did the math, but we were probably living on 40% of his salary. Okay. And it's amazing too, because I, and by the way, if people want to follow along the journey, like go back in time, Carl documented on his blog, 1500 days. So he like tracked it along the way before you were retired. So Correct. or before he left before his corporate job yes. to be more specific. Um, okay. So that, that's really good to know. And the interesting thing is I was just reading Carl's blog because it's a good blog and he was like, we didn't track our expenses as well as we thought. Maybe that's why he's, he stuck um, with the job for a little longer. But I think that's probably one of the most Im important parts. I think it's, I think it's kind of hard to track. So like, how did you guys approach it back then? And do you have a better handle on like the exact spending amounts now? Or is it just because of the way you live your, your lives, you don't need to like keep a strict budget. Like every time you go to the grocery store, for example. So yes to all of that. Um, we started tracking probably in 2013 with a notebook. It was a, a notebook opened up to the same sheet right at, on the countertop as I walked in the house and it had date, store, category, and dollar amount. And then I think there was like a running total or something. Um, and when I would go to the grocery store, 
I would write it down on 215. I went to King Supers and I spent $37.12 and on groceries. And what I noticed right away after that first month was I went to the grocery store every single day because we lived, we lived over here and the gym was here. And in between here and the gym were like seven grocery stores. And oh, I just need that one thing. Have you ever gone into the grocery store and just gotten that one thing? No. I always stop by the damaged bin. You know, ooh, what's over here? What's the dented can today? Oh, I don't need pickled pig's feet. Or yeah, I can use black beans or, you know, whatever. So I would go in for one thing and come out with 10, which isn't a big deal once a week or once a month. But every single day, all of a sudden, I have all this stuff that I don't really need. And that was the most eye-opening of tracking spending is just, I need to stop going to the grocery store every day. So I really tried to plan out our meals and not so much budget as just like, oh, this is on sale today. I was going to have beef, but now I'll have chicken because it's cheaper. Um, so I tried to plan out meals and know what I had in the counters or in the cabinet so I could start clearing those out. Um, that was literally the biggest thing for us was just stop going to the grocery store every single day um, and tracking your spending because once you, you know, you track it for the first month with no shame and no guilt and you just, where are you spending your money? You start tracking it and you're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I go to Starbucks seven times a day or I go out to dinner, you know, every Friday and Saturday night. I know I do it, but I don't really pay attention to it. And now I can start seeing, oh, I don't need this. My values aren't what I'm spending my money on. So I'm going to stop going to the grocery store every day. I'm going to make it a point of only going on Mondays because I mean, Saturdays is a disaster, but like I'm only going to go on Mondays. And then on Tuesday, if I need something, I'm going to have to make do or I'm going to have to make something else. And we we started making it into a game. How little can I spend? Oh, I'm not going to go to the grocery store at all this week. I've got milk and I've got fresh fruit and I don't need anything else. So I'm going to see, can I, can I make it, you know, 10 days without the grocery store? Can I make it two weeks without the grocery store? And I'm not up to once a month shopping yet, but we're doing a lot better. And I'm actually, I'm actually back down to going in more frequently, but buying less, being very conscious of what I'm buying at the grocery store. And I don't even walk past the discount bin anymore because that's like a trigger. That's a spending trigger. Um, we now have a thing on our phones. It's a little app. It's a, what is it? A Google form that is our budget. Um, the waffles on Wednesday group or couple, I guess they're not a group. It's a couple. They wrote an article about how to track your spending. It's a mobile spending tracker. You make a questionnaire on Google forms and you know, it's a custom questionnaire. So you can ask whatever you want. And then when you enter it into your phone, it sends it to a spreadsheet. So I don't have to remember if I'm stopping at seven places, I don't have to remember all the things that I went to and how much I spent. I fill it out right there at the cash register as I'm walking out to my car. Um, and that's been really helpful to track what we're spending and when we're spending because it's so easy to forget a, an expense. Um, Carl did the math. I think we did, we spent $60,000 last year. We took a couple of vacations. Um, and I, I traveled a lot last year. Uh, so this year we're going to aim for $40,000 or less 
minus house expense or not including house expenses because we just bought a new house and we're getting ready to rehab it. Gotcha. Okay. In going back to the sort of beginning of like tracking the spending, obviously there's apps and there's different solutions uh, that are technical. You could manage on your phone. I think there's something powerful to write it down in a notebook for some reason. Like I, I use notebooks and my notes here for our interview or I wrote them by hand. Like I could have typed them out, but I wrote them by hand. So do you think there's anything, I guess, that was useful by writing it by hand versus using an app or just because we could download, you could have downloaded your credit card or your bank statements and then like categorize the past and you wouldn't have had to go through that month or whatever when you were figuring out your expenses. So handwriting, any thoughts? I absolutely think that it's amazing to handwrite it. I had a notebook and it was sitting on the counter and the first day of every month was a new page. And the first day of the month, you're like, oh, here's my mortgage payment. Here's my electric bill. And then you start watching that list grow and it's in front of your face. Mm-hmm. The only downside to the the Google form is that I don't really see the spreadsheet unless I go into the computer and look at it. Whereas the notebook sitting there right where I put my keys down, even if I haven't spent anything that day, I can still see that big list of expenses that I have, you know, of money that I have spent. And, you know, you get towards the end of the month and you're like, Ooh, there's that running total. I'm at, you know, $1,800 and I really want to keep it under 2400 And, you know, can I do that? It kind of is, I think it's more powerful to do it handwriting, but not everybody wants to undertake that. So I would say that if you're thinking about tracking your spending, you absolutely should, and you should do it in the way that's the easiest for you. But if writing it down is is at all possible, do that to look at it every single day. Very good. So let's uh, sort of transition into your job now. Okay. So how long have you been working with Bigger Pockets, and what do you do there? I have worked there for four and a half years. I am the community manager. The BiggerPockets.com is a website where we teach people how to invest in real estate. Um, we have a forum, a blog, a YouTube channel. We now have three podcasts. So I manage the forums. I'm the community manager of the forums. I write articles for their blog. I make videos for their YouTube channel. I host one of their podcasts called Bigger Pockets Money, where we talk about the journey to financial independence. Cool. And funny thing is, you're my real estate agent. So yes, and I'm a real estate agent. <laughs> yes. And, um, I saw your uh, message in like the Slack group for this co-working space. And I was like, Hey, Mindy, uh, maybe we could work together. I didn't Google you. I didn't do any research. I didn't know you were married to Carl. I had no clue who you were, <laughs> even though there, there was like a huge uh, electronic paper trail that I could have found and like learned about you or anything. Um, so just, I don't know. I'm, ignorant and didn't, didn't check or do anything. But, um, yeah, it was pretty amazing. Cause I was chatting with, um, one of my friends and she was like, Oh, you, you were in Longmont. Do you, do you know, uh, Mr. 1500? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, we're tight. Yeah. Like I, I know him a little bit. Yeah. I drank a beer with him once. So, um, yeah, just super interesting. Now you don't have to work. And I know you, you mentioned like, right when we met, you were like, Hey, 
I love my job. I like what I'm doing. So what is it about the, that role at Bigger Pockets that you dig so much? Um, I get to talk about real estate and money all day long, which is kind of my favorite thing. I mean, you know, kids aside, husband aside, I love real estate. I have been in love with real estate since the first time I sold a property. I was renting an apartment. I'm like, I'm tired of throwing away my money. I'm going to get a condo. And I bought a condo and I sold, I bought it for $49,500 and I sold it for $75,000 four years later because I got married and he had a house and I didn't want this condo anymore. And I was like, wait, I just made $25,000. I'm going to do that again. I'm going to buy. Cause I had bought it. It was very ugly. I put in a tile floor. I painted the walls and it was nice when I left. And, um, cause I couldn't afford something nice. I could afford something ugly and I could make it nice. And then I thought, well, I'm going to do that again. So we made his house nice and sold it. And then we bought another ugly house on purpose and made it nice and sold it. And we've just kind of fallen into this rhythm of we will buy a house. We will, that's very unattractive. We will live in it while we're fixing it up and then we'll sell it. And when we do that, we make a lot of money. And I found this website by chance where people talk about real estate and in real life, nobody talks about real estate. I'm not going to tell you about this amazing deal I just found because you're going to steal it from me because you can't find your own amazing deals. And real estate doesn't have to be this contentious uh, interaction. It can be helpful. I would love to tell you about rental real estate. You you need to screen your tenants. Oh, I didn't know that. I was just going to go with my gut. Well, no, let me tell you why. And here are some things you might not know you can ask, or here are some things you cannot ask. And you don't know what you don't know. And I have a lot of stuff that nobody in real life wants to know about. And I go to this website and people want to ask me questions and, you know, they listen to my answers. I when you have kids, you get really used to people not listening to anything you say. <laughs> so it's just, it's really nice to have information that other people want and have a place to share it. So that's what really gets me up in the morning to go to work every day. And I really love going to work every day. I, yeah. I feel a little guilty sometimes. The girls will be up and fighting and, you know, giving Carl a hard time. And I'm like, see ya, I'm going to go have a good time at work. That's, that's <laughs> funny. And, um, I think it's amazing. Like you found the job where you were obsessed with it anyway, and then you just get to help other people that are interested and also obsessed. How did you find the gig? So I, Carl and I have this blog and we went to a conference called FinCon and I walked into a presentation. I don't know if I read it, read the title wrong or if I walked into the wrong room, but there was very little seating left. I found a seat all the way in the front, all the way tucked into the side. And these two guys get up and start talking about how to take your blog and move it to another hosting company. I'm like, I have nine readers. I don't need this information. So I start to get up to leave and I look around and it is very clear that I am the only person who doesn't know who two these two guys are. So I'm like, well, I guess I'm going to sit here and learn this because it is standing room only. It would be very disruptive if I got up and left. So they start talking, blah, 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 real estate. I'm like, oh, I like real estate. Blah, 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 real estate investing, blah, blah, blah. We have a website where people talk about real estate investing. I'm like, whoa, what is that? I would never think to Google a real estate question because who's going to answer that? It's very competitive. 
And I'm not going to tell you my secrets because then you're going to steal my deals. So it was amazing to me that there was this thing. And I stopped after the presentation was over and I started talking to them. And they're like, well, yeah, it's this website. Come check it out. And I, I hopped on the site. I'm like, there is no way this is free. I cannot believe there's all this stuff. I'm not going to make an account because they're going to ask me for my credit card. And they didn't. And I... I was there for about six months and finally I'm like, I don't care if they ask me for my credit card. I got to answer this question. (laughs) So they didn't ask me for my credit card. I jumped in. I started contributing and I was just like, this is the best thing ever. But I had two kids who were, or one little one who was still at, at home. She hadn't gone to school yet. And they posted this job. And I thought, I am so angry that they posted this job in May when she's not starting kindergarten until August. And this is the perfect job for me. They're like, we want every single thing you have. I'm like, I wish this was, I wish this was available. And then somebody asked, how long is the job going to be open for? And they said, until we find the right person. I'm like, okay, I'm going to apply then. And I applied and we had a conversation and they, the guy, Josh Dorkin actually remembered me from that conversation outside FinCon a couple of years before. And we had a great discussion. He's like, I really want to hire you. And I'm like, I really want you to hire me, but I can only work part time until August. He's like, okay. So I found it through chance and, you know, I was, I would almost do this for free. I mean, frankly, I would do it for free. Just don't tell Scott. (laughs) But I love talking about real estate. I love talking about money. I want to help you succeed in your real estate adventures. There's enough real estate to go around for everyone. So I don't care that I tell you what's going on because even if you go and take that deal, there's another deal. I can find another deal. I don't need that. I'm not going to be super happy, but you know, there's enough deals to go around. Yeah. Interesting. So it, it started at FinCon and what, what year was that? Just roughly? 2013. 2013. And then a couple of years later, and, and you lurked on the forums for six months. Did I catch that right? Yes. So you were just reading and you were like, I want to answer, but I don't want to make an account and have them say, we're going to charge your credit card. So okay. that's yeah, so funny. I just lurked for, for about six months. And then I finally just said, I got to do this. And I jumped in and I would, I would go in on the mornings and, you know, check out questions and, ooh, they need my advice. And then I'd go back a little bit later, like, ooh, does anybody have any follow up questions for me? Like, I was so excited to find this place. And I, I was a stay at home mom. I wasn't really actively looking to invest in real estate and grow my portfolio like I am now. It was just a really cool place to teach people what I already know. And, I was just so excited to participate. Awesome. And you, you were in Longmont at that time mm-hmm. and Bigger Pockets is based out of Denver, is that right? That is correct. Okay. So would you have been able to do it if you were located somewhere else? Just curious. I don't know if it matters, but I would have been. Um I do feel that I am fairly uniquely qualified to be in this position. Brandon Turner works for Bigger Pockets as well. And he was out of Washington State when he started working for Bigger Pockets. He now lives in Hawaii. Um, they had posted in the job, we prefer somebody local, but you know, that's not a requirement. Yeah. And you were active in the forums for a little while before you applied. So they knew that you were knowledgeable and you were about the community because you were helping out anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And then, so how did the podcast 
come about? Um, cause you have something like over a hundred episodes at this point in time. So how did that, the community manager role turn into podcast host and, and even more? Cause you have a YouTube channel, uh, or bigger, bigger pockets does. So there's many hundreds of videos out there. Yes. There, are, there are many hundreds of videos out there. I'm not actually sure. Uh, so many. Um, so the podcast came about the bigger pockets has a real estate investing podcast and that's been going since 2013. And one of the most frequently asked questions in the forums is how do I get started investing in real estate with no money and bad credit? And my answer was always, you don't. Nobody gives you a house. And even if they give you a house, you still have to pay taxes. You have to pay, you know, utilities. You have to fix up because nobody's going to give you a perfect house. Um, so let's fix your situation. Let's fix your no money situation. Let's fix your bad credit situation. And I started talking to Scott Trench, who was our director of operations at the time. I'm like, you love money or well, like (laughs) 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 you love teaching people the proper way to use money. And you know, you're really passionate about this and you're passionate about real estate too. Let's start a podcast about money. And he said, Oh, okay, great. And we kind of tossed the idea around a little bit, but not that much. And then finally I said, we're doing this. And he said, great, let's do it. We recorded an episode at FinCon. We recorded a bunch more episodes and then (laughs) The week between Christmas and New Year's, I had to figure out all by myself because everybody was on vacation. How do I upload this to Apple? How do I get all of this stuff done so that we could launch on January 1st, 2018? Because that was a Monday and that's when we wanted to come out. So I learned I'm not a tech person. Um, I learned how to do all of this in the span of a week, just kind of by trial and error. And frankly, if I can do it, anybody can do it. <laughs> so yeah, because I was wondering, I was like, oh, you must have it because Bigger Pockets is a pretty big company at this point, right? So I was like, oh, you must have a team behind it. Uh, but the first one, <laughs> you figured out how to upload and do all the business, huh? I created the podcast. I didn't edit, but I created the podcast. Um I had somebody else do the artwork, I guess, and we had a photo shoot. But yeah, I had to upload all that stuff and and just do as much as I could. We do have Dave probably created the actual show in our podcast hosting platform. But everything else, I was like, I don't know how to upload this. And I guess I'm just going to start it and we'll see what happens. And amazing, it worked. That's awesome. And how often are you asked if you and Scott are married? Oh my goodness, all the time. (laughs) And what's really funny is um, Scott was born after I graduated high school, but he does not have a baby face. So I don't think people look at him and think, wow, he's got to be 50. You know, I think they look at him and think he's in his 30s, but I also think that people kind of tend to misjudge my age. and not, and nobody's thinking I'm 20. Humble but. brag there. I like how you <laughs> no, no, no. slid that in there. <laughs> no, so I was recording, I was guest hosting on the, the real estate podcast and I said something. I'm like, yeah, I'm 21. And somebody commented, they're like, I just saw a picture of Mitty. She is not 21. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. I thought That's that was funny. funny. But yeah, people ask if we're married a lot, which I think is so funny because... We work together. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. uh, There's a lot of husband and wife podcast teams, maybe, or online is a little different than, I don't know. 
Yeah, I, I guess. I just thought that was really funny the first time somebody asked me that. They're like, oh, and, and how long have you been Scott? You and Scott been married? I'm like, <laughs> not married. Stop it. Yeah, that's pretty funny. And did, um, so you recently went to um, a podcast conference, right? Which, which one was that? And uh, did Scott go with you? Did you get even more questions? <laughs> Uh, we went to podcast evolution, or I went to podcast evolutions, or I'm sorry, podcast movement evolutions. Let's get the the name right. Uh, it was out in Los Angeles, and nobody Scott didn't go with me. They didn't ask me where Scott was. Um, he's the now the CEO of the company, so he doesn't really attend these conferences. Um, I just wanted to go to see what I could learn, and pretty much I know nothing about podcasting. Uh, promotion, SEO, like any of that stuff. So I learned a ton and it was really beneficial. If you're thinking about starting a podcast, you need to go to podcast movement and learn all the things in the beginning. So you're not playing catch up two years later. What, what were the couple big takeaways? Um, anything specific around like those topics you just mentioned? Um, so the best tip that I got was listen to your podcast. I have an editing team, so I don't have to go back and listen. And I was in the conversation. Why would I listen to it? But when you listen to your show, you start to pick up, oh, that's my little tick. I need to stop saying, um, every other word or, you know, oh, I tend to ramble, which is kind of my thing. So maybe I need to start, start cutting it short, you know, get your thought out and maybe even write stuff down. Um, do a little more research, plan ahead, uh, and promote your show. Every day, be posting on social media. Hey, here's our episode. You should listen to it. Here's a little video clip. Here's a little audio blurb. Here's you know a great quote from the episode. So I'm very, very excited to put those into practice. Cool. And have you gone back to listen to any episodes since then? Uh, so on my way into the office tomorrow, I will be listening to our current episode, which is 113 with Bianca DiValerio. Um, which is a really great episode because she is a single woman with no college degree who works an hourly job and she's financially independent. And I think there are a lot of people who come to the financial independence space from a different part of their life. They are a software engineer, so they're making six figures and they are, you know, college educated and maybe they had some college debt and you know, they're in a different financial place. And here's somebody who didn't start off with any advantages and still made it to financial independence before age 40. So I listened to the episode and watched part of the YouTube interview as well. Awesome. Really good interview. And Bianca's like amazing. Yeah. Great interviewee. Yes. Yes. She's just, she's one of my favorite people. She's just fantastic to listen to. And her story can teach you so much. Like, it's she had short sales during the economic downturn of 2008 she really didn't have any advantages she thought she was going to invest in these real estate properties that would you know see her through retirement and she lost them and how do you get over that and you know what you do if you wallow in it you're going to just sit there and not have the best experience but if you pick yourself up and move forward like she did you're going to have success and she's i mean she's living proof that Anybody can reach financial independence if they just follow the pretty boring steps to financial independence. Spend less or earn more or start a business, invest properly, 
you know, and she's done a pretty great job of doing all those things. And it seems like they were like catastrophic mistakes, the short sales that she went through. But um, yeah, it's not so bad. I have a foreclosure in my books, um, which is fine at this point. Um, but yeah, that's another conversation. So we don't need to talk about myself, but <laughs> it's, it's fine. Like after that, everything is fine. Like it's, it, it was a big decision of like risk management, which Bianca talks about a lot, but really, you know, foreclosure or, or short sale, it's just like a blip in time. And then like time kind of erases, as long as you don't continue to make like bad mistakes over and over again. Yeah. And so. I can't think of anybody who has just lived a perfect life. I've never had a mistake. I've never had a setback. Everybody has them and it doesn't have to define you. It can really feel like, I'm sure when Bianca was going through her short sale, when you were going through your foreclosure, that's the only thing you can think of. You can't think of what you're going to make for dinner or what you're going to do tomorrow or what you're going to do next week. All you can think about is this like black cloud that's following you around and this is the worst thing and you'll get through it. It it won't ruin you if you don't let it, but it can very easily ruin you just by not, you know, not getting over it. Yeah. And just, it's sort of like the outlook. I was going to say, I, didn't, I actually didn't feel too bad going through it <laughs> for, for whatever reason. <laughs> Weird makeup. That's just my odd personality, I suppose. But um Yeah. Very interesting story. So people check out that episode with uh, Bianca. Um, Another thing I didn't know about you until I was doing some research is you wrote uh, or you wrote a book, right? I wrote a book called How to Sell Your Home. Can you tell me about the process, the writing, and just how did it go? Uh, Well, the process was I made an outline. I just sat down like, well, what do I want people to know? I I want people to know how to sell a house because there is so much that you don't know about the process. I learned a lot from my sister who went through it. She was trying to sell her house and buy another one. And her real estate agent was quite horrible. She didn't keep her informed of all the deadlines that were coming up. She didn't tell her the home inspection process or anything like that. And my sister didn't know. I wish she would have asked me, but whatever. Um, So she had a home inspection on the new property and there were like six things, really small things. It was quite interesting how great of shape this property was. And so she just, she's like, so Mindy, they'll just fix this, right? I'm like, well, no, you have to ask them to fix it. And she's like, well, so do I just give them this sheet? And I said, well, talk to your agent because there's usually a form to fill out. So she calls her agent and her agent said, oh, the deadline passed yesterday. Why didn't you ask her about that? So, you know, I just, I wanted people to know the process for selling a house and for buying a house. That's the next book. It's coming out, uh, I think next year. I want to say January of 2021, how to buy a house. Um, but you know, there's so many things you don't know about selling a house. So that was the reason I wanted to, to write the book. And then, you know, the process was I just, I wrote out an outline. What do I want you to know? Well, let's, let's look at the reasons that you're selling this house. I have to move across country is a, a reason that is going to have different financial impacts on you than, eh, I don't like the kitchen. Um, great. You don't have to sell in a down market because you don't like the kitchen. You have to sell, even if it's in a down market, if you're moving across country. Um, 
or you could turn it into a rental, but is that really something you want to do? Not everybody wants to own rentals. I don't understand that, but whatever. You know, if you are moving across country and you need to sell your house, you're going to be able to, you're going to have different motivations. You're going to accept the offer that maybe you wouldn't accept if you, you know, didn't have to move. Um, we talk about, or I talk about, uh, different types of loans when you're selling your house. Um, you're not getting a loan, but your buyer is getting a loan. Here's what happens when you have a VA loan. Here's what happens when the person buying your house is using an FHA loan. Here's what happens when they're using a conventional loan. You know, cash is cash. Nobody cares. Um, but a common misconception for people who are selling their house is that cash is somehow better. Um, when you're buying a house with cash, you're not getting a lender to approve your loan. So there's that part out of the way. But at the end of the day, when I sell my house for $100,000, I'm either getting $100,000 from your lender or I'm getting $100,000 cash from you. I'm still getting $100,000. So sometimes people will accept a lower offer on a property when they don't really need to. Right. Um, on, under this misconception that, ooh, cash is better. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's see. And then the writing process was I was on an airplane from Chicago to... Ireland. And I just typed for, what is that, eight hours? And then I flew back and did the same thing. And it was it was actually a really short process to write the book because I had the outline. I knew, you know, here's the head, here's the, the chapter that I want to talk about. Here's the four things I want to talk about in that chapter. I just kind of filled it out. Um, and I've been doing this since, I don't know, 1996. So, I know all the things. It's just taking them out of my brain and sticking them on a piece of paper. Holy cow. That's crazy because you hear a lot of people talk about the writing process, but I mean, not to do it. I didn't do it right. I didn't do it the way anybody yeah. else does it. I just, I wrote out an outline and then I filled out the outline and yep. I mean, it worked for me, but yeah, no, I don't, I don't have a lot of good things to say, <laughs> like, like good advice for the writing process. That's great. Yeah. You just create the outline, write the book. Publish it. That's it. There you go. <laughs> What's the problem? Yeah. So, um, and, and is that book like, I guess, who's the target? Um, so, anyone selling their home, whether it's with uh, an agent or without, or like who, who's it? Yeah, for that specific book. So, this book is for people who are selling maybe their first house or their second house or a house that they haven't they haven't sold, you know, in a long time. So they're unfamiliar with the process. You can be selling a rental property. You can be selling a primary residence. I do touch on for sale by owner, but there's so much to the buy and sell process that Mm -hmm. I really do think you need to use an agent to help you out. I talk about the different types of agency. There's, you know, the buyer's agent that charges like five or 6% and is the full service, everything you need to Mm -hmm. sell your house. There's, you know, smaller, uh, what is it? What is it called? A flat fee agents where they will show you the house and help you buy it, but they don't really Mm -hmm. do a lot, uh, with you. Um, there's the flat fee agent that is, you know, the, the, I'm, I'm sorry, this is, I'm in the middle of writing the buy book, so yeah, it's, I'm thinking it's buy. Mixing. That's okay. <laughs> well, what what I was going to say, and I'll just interrupt you there. Apologies. No, that's um, fine. So 
I sold the house that we moved from in Bozeman and we contacted our, um, it was, it was a seller's market by far, which is the reason why I was like, you know what, let's give this a shot because, um, my experience like with real estate is there's a lot of mistakes made by, um, well, almost everyone in the process, there's like little mistakes and there's so many people involved. So it's like your, your real estate agent, the broker, some other person at the title company, blah, blah, blah. So there's always mistakes in every form that I got. I'm pretty good with details. My wife is too. So we thought, you know what, if, if they can get by making all the mistakes, as long as we can like get a couple offers, I'm pretty sure we should be able to figure it out. So we kind of stumbled our way through it and it was probably the cheapest place we're ever going to sell. So I was like, this is a good lower risk time for me to make some mistakes and figure it out. It was fun. I baked cookies and uh, (laughs) the first person that came in, actually I went to go buy a, um, like a for sale by owner sign at the hardware store while I was at the store getting like the phone number, like stickers, you know, uh-huh. um, I got a text and it was like, Hey, I want to see the house this afternoon. So I was like, Holy, Holy shit. I can't believe it. And, um, so I, I grabbed the, uh, grabbed the stuff, bought it, went home. We got an offer like later that day. The funny thing, when I bought the sign, I only got stickers for one side of the sign. <laughs> like that's how incompetent <laughs> I was just one side of the sign. And I, I took it back. We never even put, we didn't have to put it up. So, um, and then we got a backup offer. So we stumbled through it and it, it was fine, but it was kind of, it was fun to learn again. Like it was lower risk than any other place that we potentially would sell in the future. So, so there's definitely a real, uh, opportunity to sell by owner. Um, if you are real estate commissions are a lot, they're, they hover between like two and a half and three percent per side. So that can be a large percentage of the sale price. Um, I totally, I sold for sale by owner, uh, two or three times and I had no qualms doing it, but I've also, I've got a lot of experience in it. So I didn't feel like I was making a bad move. Absolutely get a real estate attorney involved in the process because the forms that you need to fill out to buy and sell a property are enormous. You want to make sure that what they're buying is what you're allowed to sell. You know, the, the legal description, if there's a number transposed or, you know, the, the, the legal descriptions are always really, really long and confusing. You just want to make sure that all the things are what you mean to sell. And what does this word be? There's a lot of words in the real estate contract that in English, they mean this, but in legalese, they mean something different. And you just want to make sure that your uh, bases are covered. Mm-hmm. And a real estate attorney is going to be a lot less expensive than a real estate agent. But a real estate attorney is not going to let you into the property. They're not going to show the property. They're not going to do all of those things. So, you know, again, back to your motivation, why are you selling? Um, if you have time to sell it, Try to sell it yourself. When there's a property that's going on the market, once it's on the MLS, the like the the multiple listing service, the place that every agent goes to, um, it starts accumulating days on market, and it's this little number on the listing. It says DOM, and when it's been on the market for 47 days in a super hot market, it looks like something's wrong with the house. Whereas if you're listing it yourself and you're trying to market it on Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist or wherever. You're not accumulating those days on market. If you can sell it by yourself, go nuts. If you, you know, get the real estate agent to, or I'm sorry, the real estate attorney to double check your forms, 
there's not a ton of downside. Now you do have to show it yourself. You have to, you know, make arrangements with real estate agents. You have to field all the phone calls from all the real estate agents who are going to try and mm-hmm. get you to list with them, you know, but you can definitely try it by yourself. Yeah. And it, I'm a moron in some ways. Like I said, I didn't even Google you before I sent you the email. <laughs> but um yeah, I would find I would find the forms and then I would put them in my own work because a lot of them they're uh like templates in this check boxes. So I was like, mm-hmm. I'm taking out all the garbage we don't need. And every now and then I would send something in the other agent, which I, I paid her commission, the buyer's agent, because I, I knew I gotta play ball. But yeah, I had and more that's, leverage. To, that's a great point yep. that, you know, if you are trying to sell it by your, by yourself, you, most buyers are using a real estate agent. So if you're selling it, you should be offering a commission to the other agent. They're doing work. There's a lot of work that you don't see mm-hmm. on the, you know, on the back end, making sure that the inspections are done and the, you know, all the dates are being followed, hopefully. Yeah. And I, I made her earn the money because I would send over forms that I basically just like butchered up and made it played plain English so that a human could understand. And then she'd say like, what is this form? You crazy person. Come on. We do things a certain way. And I'm like, okay, send me the form you want me to use. So I like stumbled my way through knowing that like there were a few people to catch any uh, catastrophic mistakes. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it turned out fine. Made money, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, it was good overall. Okay. So let's talk about live-in flips. That's kind of your thing. I've been watching um, your YouTube channel. You, uh, I guess it's under 1500 days. Is mm-hmm. that right? Okay. So you guys are talking about um, the renovation that you're doing now. So can you explain the, the concept? And it sounds like it started with like your first condo that you bought, right? You did it by accident. I did it by accident. I didn't know live-in flip was a thing because I didn't, bigger pockets didn't exist back then. And I wouldn't have Googled it anyway, because Google also didn't exist. I'm really (laughs) old. (laughs) But a live-in flip is where you move into a property that is habitable, must be habitable, but maybe extremely ugly. Maybe it's just, and you know, extremely ugly can, is totally subjective, but shag carpeting and orange walls and, you know, Carpet on the ceiling. I found a house once that had wallpaper on the ceiling. There's all sorts of ridiculous things that people do to the interior of their home. Um, There are people who have no vision. There are people who have no time to work on it. There are people who just don't want to. They want to buy a nice house. And all of those ideas are valid. I want to force the appreciation and make the money on the house. And I have to live someplace anyway. My house is an investment because I'm making it nicer so I can push the value up. The current house that we bought is we paid $365,000 for it. Uh, the exact same model. It's in a custom and semi-custom neighborhood with some cookie cutter houses thrown in around the corner, sold for $598,000. So there's a huge spread available. Um, of course, that one was a nice house and mine reeked of cigarette smoke, has the original kitchen. It has an in-ground pool. And we live in Colorado where pools are not the norm. People don't want a pool. So nobody wanted this house. And then even if they got past the pool, they would walk in and be like, ooh, that 40 years of Marlboro's? It's like really, really horrible. I had to change my clothes when I, the first time I saw the house, I went home and changed because it was so pervasive. It was so strong. 
but we had when once we bought it, we had the carpets professionally cleaned by a company that has like a truck mounted system, which is more powerful than like the rug doctor you get at the grocery store. Um, they came in and sucked out a lot of the smoke smell. And then we bought an ozone machine on Amazon. It's about this big and it was $80 and we ran it for 10 ish hours around the house. And now my house doesn't smell like smoke. Wow. Did you have to paint it as well? Cause I, I bought a place that had a ton of smoke. Yeah. Like a hundred years of smoke, something like that. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we painted the walls and the ceiling and it was pretty much like gone after that. So we pulled off most of the wallpaper. Um, we haven't, we've, we've painted some of it. We haven't painted the ceilings. Um, but we didn't paint most of the house yet. And it was just the ozone machine. And if you're really interested in ozone, you should look it up because Google will tell you a way better description than I will. But basically the ozone machine shoots out O3, which is not breathable. So you can't like be living in the house while this is happening. But you, you turn on the machine, you close the door and it runs it or it spits out all this ozone, which, um, kind of kills the smoke or encapsulates the smoke and then dissipates. I'm not sure exactly how it works, but it works. It works amazingly well. I think they smoked the most in our master bathroom, which is so gross. Um, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we had to run it in that room, which is a really tiny room. We had to run it in that room more than in any other room. But then once it's it's got a timer on it. So you turn it on for 30 minutes and then you come back and you open the windows and turn on a fan and kind of move that around. And that helps dissipate the ozone as well. Um, just like a half-life of 30 minutes or something. So it's pretty easy to get rid of. Okay. Amazing. And you mentioned that the house was in rough shape. It smelled like cigarettes and you went around and looked at homes with, uh, me and my wife, (laughs) my wife and I, and then, um, some places we went in and we're like, no way. Like e- even if they were probably okay ish, we were looking for something different, but how did you know that the place that you walked into after so many people were like, ah, swimming pool looks like a wreck smells like cigarettes. How do you see the potential past the, you know, just the surface? Hmm. You know, the, in, so the neighborhood that the house is listed in, we knew we wanted to buy in that neighborhood. So we had been, to all of the houses that were for sale in that neighborhood. And you can see the the nice house around the corner was, it was done in a style that I don't like. It was more of like a country style and I'm not a country style person, but I could see the potential because I could see what it looked like with nice cabinets and with nice countertops and nice paint and, you know, decorations. But when we saw it, it was vacant. So you can see the size of the rooms. It's a split level, which is not such a desirable uh, floor plan in most places, but it didn't seem to matter in the neighborhood that we were in. People wanted to be in that neighborhood more so than they wanted to buy that particular style of house. Um, but all the houses like this that have been selling are selling fairly quickly. It's not like they're being punished for being a split level. They're, people just don't seem to care. Um, but because it's a split level, it has really high ceilings and that creates a big sense of openness. So, um, I, how did I see the, the potential just looking at all the other houses that had sold that were that same floor plan and were nicer. Gotcha. 
And what's the timeline for, for this particular house? Do you have it like mapped out and you know, the thing to, that you guys are going to work on? So Carl is working on uh, refinishing the, or uh, finishing the basement. There's, he's going to build a bathroom down there and then just kind of finish out the walls and it'll be another living space, but with a door that you can close. So we'll put the TV down there and the kids can watch movies down there or have their friends over. Um, then we're going to move to the outside and put a nice big deck on the backyard to go with the pool because we're going to be outside all the time because it's got this amazing in-ground pool. Um, well, it's a fairly broken in-ground pool. It will be amazing. <laughs> There's a big hole back there yeah. right now. <laughs> There's a big hole. You can put water in it. Um, but he's done a bathroom. He's painted the front room. Um, the kitchen's going to be next year because that's going to be a big undertaking. We want to... Oh, we're doing windows. I just forgot. The windows arrived next week. Um, it's got original windows from 1979. So they're leaky. They're ugly. They have these weird latches on them that don't quite close. So we're just going to replace all of those um, in the next few weeks. Do you want to learn how to impl- how to install windows? I may want to take a look. Yeah. <laughs> Come yeah, on over. I'll let you know. <laughs> I can show you how to install uh, sliding glass doors, big picture windows, little bathroom windows, whatever you want. You already, you already know how to do it. No, oh. he knows. I <laughs> okay. say, I say, I, I mean, we, and mostly he. Yeah, he's been working job. hard. He yeah. has. You know, he doesn't work anymore. He's retired, and this is what he likes to do. He he wants to learn how to install windows. It's really not that hard, but it's really hard if you don't know what you're doing. It's really hard to install a sliding glass window by yourself because they weigh more than you can lift and they're awkward. And, you know, so you need people to help with that part. But then once you get it into place and you screw a couple of screws in there, then it's just, you know, screw they're in place. It's going to, it's not going to fall over. Then you can go around and do the rest. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so he's excited to learn a new skill. Um, Yeah. Is it like challenging with the kids, like yes. doing this. Okay. Yes. It's so hard with kids. <laughs> uh, we have decided though, that we are only going to work on it when the kids are in school. They're in school, uh, what, seven and a half hours a day, five days a week. We don't need to be working on this house from sunup to sundown every single day. It doesn't have to get finished. Um, that's another thing about live and flips that I forgot to say is that in order, I mean, the whole reason I do this is because it's tax-free growth up to $500,000 because I'm married up to $250,000. If you're single, that's money I'm not paying any taxes on. When I sell my house, I just take that money and put it right in my pocket and Uncle Sam sees none of it. Um, it is my goal to one day hit the $500,000 ceiling and then go over it a little bit so I do have to pay taxes on it. But because um, that's, I mean... Oh, what a hard problem. You made 500,000 tax-free dollars in two years. What a, what a tough life you have. Now you have to pay taxes on, you know, $25,000. Life is so rough. <laughs> um, so it's, it's not about not paying taxes. It's about not having to pay taxes through the laws that the government has put into right. place. Um, so, but you have to live there for two years. You can't do this, you know, move into your property, fix it all up in three months and then sell it and pay no taxes. That you actually pay income tax on whatever your current rate is. So Mm -hmm. that's maybe not the best. Well, you know, it depends on how much money you're making on the property, but I need a place to live anyway. Why not turn my house into an investment, 
by making it look nicer, you know, buying something ugly, making it look nicer and then selling it down the road. So we don't really have a timeline on it because we have kind of done this a lot. I think this is our ninth one. And we're like, maybe we should just take it easy and, you know, live here until the little one's in fourth grade. So she has eight more years of Mm -hmm. school until she's out of high school. And then maybe we'll think about moving um, or maybe we'll stay and maybe turn it into an Airbnb. Yeah. It's a nice neighborhood. I mean, I would see why you would want to stay the cool people in the neighborhood too. So yeah, there's a lot of cool people in the neighborhood and it's quiet. There's, excuse me, there was one house across the street from us that had, uh, you know, the parents were living there, their kid moved back in and did meth in the house. So that's the one house out of like 381 that had a drug issue. Um, it's just a nice, quiet neighborhood. So I really, I really like that. It's got an HOA, but it's like the best HOA ever. It's $50 a year and um, it's voluntary. So I don't even have to pay that $50 a year, but I would totally want to. Uh, but it, it, an HOA keeps people from doing dumb things like parking 14 cars on their lawn and then never moving them. Um, or parking 27 cars in the, along the streets and never moving them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but HOAs can be really restrictive and ours isn't, which is pretty nice. That's cool. And the most amazing part is the, the tax saving. So I have my own business and I pay taxes quarterly and it's absolutely bananas. Like how much you have to pay in taxes when you, when you're actually like writing the check yeah. to the IRS. So yeah. it's amazing. And you said you've, you've done, so this is your ninth, you've done eight of them in the past. Mm-hmm. Right. And a c- couple cool things. So number one, you guys have been doing this for a while. So it's just sort of normal where I think my wife and I, like we're moving into a new construction, the opposite of what, what you guys do. Right. And we're used to, or hopefully we, we just enjoy having a place that's like done and we don't have to mess with it. It's nice to have a place that's done and you don't have to mess with it. (laughs) It's cool. And we're spoiled. We, we don't like splurge on a ton of things, but like housing is important and we're like the, we spend most of our time there. I got a home office. So, um, we're not used to it, but since you guys are used to it, the whole family's used to it. It's like, Hey, this is what we do. And it's just normal. So that's cool. And then, um, yeah, again, the, the tax savings and how, you know, I imagine it helped, you know, that first 580 K when, when Carl was having the bad day at work and he was like, how can I retire? So, did the live in flips like contribute a lot um, early on as far as like retiring? And then how has it um, like helped obviously with the tax savings? Um, it has contributed a lot. Uh, we made a hundred thousand dollars on this house. We made a hundred thousand dollars on that house. We made, you know, a hundred thousand dollars is kind of our sweet spot. And we, the house that we were living in when we bought this one, we bought it for 176. We put a roughly a hundred into it. So we've got 276 into it. We could sell it for 550, 575 pretty easily. Um, that's $300,000. And a lot of that is, you know, we bought it really low. The market went crazy. This house we bought for 365. The one around the corner sold for 600. We're not planning on selling it for a while. We'll probably do $300,000 on this again. And it's, that's, you know, probably going to pay for college for the girls. Um, it's, it's contributed significantly, but we can't ignore the 
the stocks, the, Mm -hmm. you know, Google at 85 and Facebook at 37 or 17 or like it IPO'd and then dropped. And that's when he bought it. Cause to get in on the IPO, you have to be like super privileged or whatever. So he dropped, he bought it when it dropped and, um, Apple and Tesla at like 20 or whatever he bought it at. Like those are really, that's where we got to the 586, you know, but then when we buy a house, we don't put more than 20% down. 20% gets rid of private mortgage insurance. So we don't want to pay that. We put the 20% down. But if I just made $100,000 and I'm buying another $100,000 house, I'm going to put 20%, $20,000 down. And now I've got 80000 goes into the mm. stock market, grows. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it has, it has definitely contributed, but it's, you know, the stock market was a real point too. Right. Yeah. Amazing. And, and both, obviously they work, they work together really well mm-hmm. and it's very, uh, it's great diversification because like we're generally just stocks and we're lazier as far as like real estate goes. So, well, and that's, it's not lazier. It's just a different approach. Thank you. <laughs> I'll take that compliment. <laughs> So we're kind of wrapping up here. I know we're probably both getting a little hungry. And uh, what are you going to eat first? Do you know? um, I'm going to have a salad. Cool. I really like salads. Yeah. Well, what kind of lettuce? I do a, a mix of uh, like that spring mix. And then I put some shredded cabbage on it, some pecans, a little bit of bacon, some French fried onions. You know those yeah. French's onions for the green bean casserole at yeah, yeah. Thanksgiving? They sell giant bags of them at uh, Sam's Club and Costco for Thanksgiving. So I just buy one and throw those on my salads for a couple months after Thanksgiving. That's nice. That's nice. What are you going to eat? Like, I, I'm not sure. I think we have some leftovers. Uh, we did like a crock pot thing over the, the weekend. It was like a breakfast something or Ooh, other. Nice. Yeah. So I'll probably have some of that. Not the health, healthiest thing in the world. But um, I'm pretty hungry. It's cold so, outside. <laughs> yeah, it is very cold. It's very cold. So, mistakes. I've never made me? a mistake. <laughs> you never. I'm I know. hundred percent. You may. Yeah. So you could you could choose uh, as many as you want, <laughs> or just oh. one. You, actually, we'll we'll change the question. You want to talk about mistakes that Carl has made? Oh my goodness, <laughs> the mistakes that that man has made. No, I will talk about mistakes that I have made. Um, one that I'm starting to recognize and really trying to get a handle on it is saying yes to everything. Um, in my position at Bigger Pockets, I'm community outreach. I talk to a lot of people and people will reach out to me and say, Hey, I would love to buy you coffee. I'm going to be in town this one day. And I'm like, Oh, how can I rearrange my schedule so I'm in the office that day and don't have anything to do so I can go out to coffee and, You know, sometimes things just don't work out and I need to get better at recognizing that so that I don't say yes to everything at the expense of my children, at the expense of my relationship with my husband, at the expense of my free time and my mental well-being. And um, on the one hand, I feel like such a fraud because who am I? Somebody wants to spend time with me. Somebody wants to talk to me about stuff. Who am I to say, no, I'm too busy. Like, I'm just some random person. I should be thankful that somebody wants to talk to me. And, you know, on the other hand, I could talk to somebody every minute of every day forever. And 
that doesn't help me spend time with my kids. That doesn't help me spend time with my husband. That doesn't help me, you know, that gives me no downtime to just relax and, you know, take a step back. And this, even saying it now sounds so conceited and snotty and, you know, who are you that people use saying no to people? But, you know, you have to recognize in your life that there are times to say yes and there are times to say no. And it's valid to say, no, I can't do that because I'm going to spend time with my kids or take a mental health break or, you know, mm-hmm. saying yes to every time you say yes to something, you are saying no to your family and you can't say no to your family and still have them be a part of your life. So good answer. That is that's, is that a mistake? Is that, yeah, saying yes to everything is a mistake. It's, uh, it's really tough. I'm not, I don't have as many people emailing me, <laughs> thankfully, but I, actually you're a lot more social and, um, n- a nicer person just in general. I can, <laughs> I can tell that just the brief time that we've known each other. I'm a little bit of an asshole. Don't tell well, I haven't noticed any of that. <laughs> so, um, I, I struggle with it, but me personally, I love to have like gaps in my schedule so that I can just think or do nothing because I tend to fill every little pocket. And then, like you said, overcommit, everything takes a little longer than I think it's going to take. So then things fall off and, um, I just, I'm happier and I, I'm more creative. I'm calmer and less stressed out with like gap in the schedule. So I hope you can, I give you permission, not that you need my permission, but like, yeah, you know what? No, you do need permission to say no, because we live in America where everybody is trying to do more and accomplish more. And you absolutely need permission from whoever you listen to that it's okay to say no. It's okay to have a gap in your schedule. You don't have to commit to everything all the time. I love driving to work twice a week. It's a 45-minute drive. I turn off the radio, and I just sit there in silence. And I have my phone next to me, and I have my my note-taker app out, and I'll just talk. Oh, hey, make sure you do this tomorrow, or don't forget you want to try this recipe, or make sure you email somebody when you get to work. And then when I get to work, I've got all these things that I was thinking about. Or, hey, here's an article that I think would be really cool to write. I can't think of that when I'm listening to the radio or the kids fighting in the backseat or having a conversation with somebody else. But I can think of that. And I mean, I've written articles on my phone and then just copy them into WordPress and post like that because, you know, you go back and you edit it to make sure you're, you're not saying, Oh, ooh, that was auto corrected into something weird. <laughs> um, but it's just a great space to think and. I need to build more spaces into my schedule where I can just sit there and think and it gets to be a little tough, but yeah, you need permission. Everybody listening, you have my permission. You have Doug's permission to start saying no to things you don't really want to do, things you don't really have time for, or things that are taking away from the the things you really love. A caveat to that is don't say no to a job so you can just play video games all day. <laughs> like, I'm not giving you permission for that. <laughs> Very good. So last question here, aside from like where people can find you and stuff, for people that want to get started with real estate 
do you have any like sort of mindset tips? Cause I know we could point them from, from a like operation standpoint to bigger pockets and all the resources there in the community, but like just how, how should someone get started if they're like, Hey, I want to maybe look into this live in flipping stuff. So if you want to be an investor without a ton of risk, I mean, what's the worst that happens after you get your house done and the market has changed? Well, now you just have to live in this house that you just made look really nice um, for a little bit longer until the market changes or whatever. So, you know, it's a really great low risk way to get involved in real estate, but be honest with yourself. Can you live in a construction zone? It's dusty. It's dirty. There's nails everywhere. There's, you know, some people get embarrassed when people come over to their house and there's like the drywall's missing. I don't care if you have a problem with my drywall missing, we're probably not friends anyway. So, you know, my house right now is tidy, but it's ugly. And I don't care if you think it's ugly. I think it's ugly too. My house is, you know, you have to be okay with that. Um, but getting into a mindset point, you, I, I don't want to say just do it, but really just do it. Run the numbers. Know what, you know, what makes a good investment. Run the numbers. Don't try to fudge numbers and to make it fit into a good investment. It either is or isn't. You find a good investment and try it out. Maybe you buy a rental property that looks great on paper, but you realize, I don't really like being a landlord. Can you find that out to a property management company and still have this be a part of your portfolio? Or is it just something that you're not comfortable with or you don't want to do it? Don't do things you don't want to do. I mean, index investing is really easy. You buy it, the end. Like <laughs> yeah, that's, just that's index. <laughs> just purchase it and then never touch it again. Who, who was I talking to? They said the, the portfolios, the investment portfolios that do the best belong to people who are dead. <laughs> you don't touch it. And, you know, the market is growing. So most stocks are growing too. I mean, notwithstanding the last two days where the market dropped a thousand points on Monday and I don't know what it did yesterday. I didn't even look. You know, the cool thing with index indexes, I didn't even know. I don't even look. I have no idea because I, I, I'm like maybe a quarterly, something like that. But uh, is it still down? Because I have some money that I need to put push on. It. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure. You should you should Google that. <laughs> yeah, actually, because I was like, right, I'm waiting until there's a little drop, and I'm just going to do it. So yeah, there was well, there's a little drop. It's uh, I think I think I saw four percent. Okay, so it's like a four percent discount. Nice. Okay, I like discounts. Cool. Like well, that's that's a perfect place to uh, wrap up so I can go put in an order. But yeah. <laughs> uh, where can people find you, Mindy? I am all over the internet. I am on BiggerPockets. Um, I'm, if you make an account, I'll be your first friend on BiggerPockets, your first colleague on BiggerPockets. Um, I'm like the MySpace Tom of BiggerPockets. <laughs> I'm on all social media at Mindy at BP. That's M-I-N-D-Y-A-T-B-P for like Mindy at BiggerPockets. Cool. We'll put links to all that stuff. Definitely listen to the podcast. It's one of my new ones that I've I've subscribed. I haven't Thank put you. in a review yet because I just want to make sure that it's good. But <laughs> That's okay. uh, yeah. But it, it's excellent. A lot of good interviews. And I, I like the approach that you guys have. So well, thank you for listening. Thanks a lot for joining me. Thanks, Doug. Be 
sure to check out Bigger Pockets if you're interested in real estate investing, and definitely check out uh, Mindy's show. It is not dedicated specifically to real estate. Th- they do talk real estate here and there, and it's a common thread with a lot of the folks that they have on, but the sort of focus is much more broad, just about money and people's money journey in general. Funny thing is uh, I was chatting with Carl and he knew that I was going to interview Mindy. So he was like, hey, I'm going to send you some questions, some funny things that you could ask or maybe work into the conversation if you're able to. There were some really obscure things that Carl sent over. I didn't know how I was going to work them in, but I, I tried to and, and you'll hear some of that in these uh, like bloopers, which is actually just the the first few minutes that we recorded. So a little behind the scenes action. A lot of times, especially if I'm recording live, I've only done a few of those, by the way, but we'll hit record. I'll start the video. And by the way, I recorded video. This is on YouTube if you want to watch us sit and actually chat. So I will start recording. We'll talk about, you know, whatever is on our mind to just sort of ease into the conversation. And for whatever reason, uh, it depends on who I'm talking to, but occasionally I get fairly nervous. Like I I sort of get like butterflies in my stomach and I was a little nervous uh, just talking to Mindy, even though I had spent, you know, hours with her already at the time when uh, I was interviewing her. So it's, it's kind of strange, but you know, we talk a little bit and then everybody sort of loosens up and, and, you know, it's kind of weird, but I guess if you're getting nervous, that's it's kind of good. I mean, there's some energy, some extra energy. You just have to channel it and manage it in the right way. I know a few folks out there may be listening to The Doug Show for the very first time. So listen to a few of the other episodes. Normally, we talk about affiliate marketing and some SEO productivity here and there. I specialize in Amazon affiliate sites. So that's a lot of the content in general and all those little details. You can get deep into the weeds with Amazon affiliate marketing, I encourage you. Some of the most popular episodes out there are about success stories and people that have started a affiliate marketing site from scratch. And some people have been able to like quit their full time jobs, do this full time. And those are the most popular episodes. So if you're interested in some of that stuff, check out those episodes. If you, if you want to subscribe, that's fantastic. We'd love to have you on board. And um, if you happen to be a longtime listener and you haven't left a review, that is uh, much appreciated. Always great to have a review. And if you want to have your question answered, you can actually send me a email, feedback at doug.show, or you can leave a voicemail. So there's a voicemail number in the description, in the show notes for this episode, for all the episodes. You could call in. It's a Google Voice number. So I actually, I don't remember the phone number, but it's in the show notes. And you can call in, ask a question. If you do that, I highly recommend you write it out, time yourself. 90 seconds is a sweet spot for such a question. If you go on too long, the voicemail will cut you off. You'll feel like, oh man, I uh, I went too long. I should have should have listened to Doug when he said to write it down and time yourself. And then... You'll be able to deliver the question in sort of a natural way. Or if it sounds like you're reading, that's totally fine. It's uh, better than rambling on. Which, funny thing, I feel like I'm rambling on right now. So we're going to call it a day here. And thanks a lot for listening to the show. The bloopers are coming up in just a second. 
I usually ask people what they had for breakfast. So what did, oh, that's what did you, a good one. Yeah, because most I, people have breakfast except like your husband. Yeah, and I'm doing that same intermittent fasting. So I had a giant pot of coffee for breakfast this morning. Perfect. That's kind of my favorite favorite thing. I love coffee too. I do too. Oh. I'm fasting as well. How long have you been doing this fasting? You know, I started like May-ish and it's uh, it's really tough to fast if you just, you're used to waking up and eating breakfast and then you hop to, oh, I'm not going to eat till 11. Don't do that. If you want to intermittent fast, you start, you know, oh, I wake up and eat breakfast. Okay. So wait a half an hour to eat breakfast. And then the next day, wait 45 minutes to eat breakfast. And then the next day, wait an hour and like slowly step it back. That is exactly how I had to do it. Cause I, I get cranky, maybe a, too soft of a word. Um, <laughs> But, but yeah, Angry? once you get used to it, it's like a superpower to be able to skip meals and like, oh, no, yeah. you're not going to die. Yeah. So it's, I can go till like 12, one o'clock if I have something to do. Yep. If I've got nothing to do, I'm like, hmm, 815, 816, an yep. hour later, 830. I'm you're so like, yeah. And, and you like to I cook, to right? I love to cook. I love cooking. So it's kind of hard. Yeah. 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 Same here. So I end up thinking about food and or cooking most of the time anyway. So yeah, it's a bit of a challenge, but for working, it's perfect. Do you find your, like your mind is more clear and you can get more done by not eating and fasting? No, no, I, I notice nothing. I certainly have noticed nothing on the scale either. This intermittent fasting is the end. The like, Oh, if you intermittent fast, you can, Eat whatever you want. No, that doesn't work like that. And I've tried the keto and I've tried like all these, you know, oh, go vegan. I'm not going to go vegan. Um, I like, I like too many things that aren't vegan, but yeah, there's, uh, there's no change to my mind. Yeah. Oh, and I ramble. So feel free to like cut me off. No, it's perfect. It allows me to just rest. <laughs> <laughs> I do some solo podcast episodes and they, you know, they're much harder because you have to keep talking. Yes. So so much harder. I have never done a solo podcast. I'm getting ready to do a solo interview. Oh yeah. And I'm not sure how that's going to go. So we'll see. Yeah. I'm sure you'll do fine. I'm sure you'll do fine. So I like to do like some light vocal warm up. So I don't know. Do you do that for your? Nope. But okay. I'm happy to do whatever you want. Okay. So I like to say wash, 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 and then apricot, apricot. So can you do a few of those? Oh, I can. Wash, wash is so hard to say because that's not how you say it. My uh, Carl teases me about that. That's actually funny that you chose those two words because he teases me. He's like, oh, I have to wash the dishes or wash as you would say. I'm like, I would never say that. So wash, 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 wash. And he's like... I say apricot because that's how you pronounce the word. And he said, no, it's apricot. What do you call the, or, you know, they're not apples. I'm like, no, they're apples, but that's different. They're apricot, 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 apricot. Yeah. But it's really apricot. I think I say apricot. I think I yeah. say apricot. And I have to. Correct. I have to be upfront. Carl fed me a few questions. Oh, so that, that's where that's those fine. came from because those were just too specific. <laughs> The moment of recognition, recognition in your eyes where you're like, this dude is, this is too I knew much. I you had already <laughs> recorded with Carl. Carl, who is a terrible person. He's pretty funny. It's, he's really funny. Yeah. yeah. 
I wish I was as funny as he is. Yeah, he's very funny, and it's like a, it's a slow, a slow burn. It's kind of like behind the scenes, like mm-hmm. this one. You didn't even know. So. Yeah, no, the the wash and wash. His dad says wash, and my I think my mom says wash, and that's just that's not correct. There's no R in there. Yeah. Do you say wash? Wash. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah pretty. I'm. I'm from Atlanta. Pretty clean accent overall. Because my parents are not from like the area down there. So oh, okay. I made it out without a southern accent. That's incredible. My mother is from the deep south. She's from Southern Illinois, and you <laughs> you, you don't yeah. think it's a deep the south north. until you go there, and then you're like, whoa, yeah. So I will I will affect a southern accent fairly easily if I'm surrounded by uh, uh-huh. people. Interesting. Interesting. 